Welcome to Machine Learning. This week's recap. Well, there's a lot going on with uh, semi-trucks and uh, Lucid Air. They're uh, uh, getting ready for production and uh, semi-trucks, hydrogen semi-trucks will be in production in 2024. And it, it's uh, <coughs> such a huge game changer. Um, it makes you wonder uh, why there isn't other companies that are looking at the hydrogen solutions, uh, but they're letting, they're letting Nikola <coughs> uh, move out first and they're building the, uh, Nikola will build the production line and uh, see the uh, semis, but then the, it's give, what it's giving is a chance for the electric semi to make a presence. And what they will do is uh, they'll run the electric semi on short runs, uh, runs less than 300 miles. And then the long run will be uh, by the Nikola. Nikola is not selling the semi, they're leasing it. So a lot of this high tech now is going to be leased uh, instead of uh, bought. But uh, it's, uh, it's interesting because the, the world of semis is a, a pretty big world. Uh, I think I saw 5 million semis on the road and uh, represents uh, about 6% of the income are, of the jobs are, are related to driving big rig. And so uh, there there is a shortage of labor for that type of work, and, uh, and they would be looking for uh, opportunity to, to expand uh, into the self-driving semis. And so I was watching how Waymo has a semi-truck that's uh, self-driving, and they have self-driving cars. And so it, it uses the same technology uh, somewhat. There's differences, you know, when you're driving a, 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 a semi with a trailer you're pulling than if you're just driving a normal car. So it has to be trained differently, but the technology is uh, very similar with the LIDAR, radar, and, and, uh, and vision. So I was interested, I watched a couple of demos on the Waymo car, and uh, you sit in the back of the car and the front seats are not occupied, and the car is driving. And it, uh, I bet it's kind of a surreal experience because you, you know, when you're in a taxi car, uh, you can see you can see a driver, and you know you're you're trusting in his abilities to navigate you. You don't see uh, the robot uh, in the front seat, so there's not that presence. But it's navigating you to your destination, and uh, it's uh, uh, it'd be like. Uh, you know, I guess if you got comfortable and trusted the the self-driving system, that you wouldn't it wouldn't be 
you wouldn't feel out of control that there wasn't someone there. And uh, it does say that uh, uh, that if you do touch the steering wheel, the car will pull over. And, and so it's able to navigate uh, around town, and uh, it has very detailed maps that it's using for its navigation. And so in some ways, it's like a commuter bus or a commuter train. It, it's following a, a predestinated route. It's not going to run off the road because it knows where the road is. Um, and... Uh, you know, it's used the the technology that Google had uh, had a, had done with the mapping to figure out what's stationary objects, what's road, what's not road. Now, with semis, it's interesting too because let's say that uh, you know it has to make a left or right hand turn, it needs to detect that uh, when it's safe to merge out into the road and it has to account for the length of its trailer to calculate whether it has time enough to pull out onto the road and begin its acceleration without uh, uh, jeopardizing the oncoming cars or uh, cars going in the opposite direction. And uh, so they're, they're, that's kind of an exciting field. <clears throat> now the other area that's uh, kind of interesting that have got my attention is uh, generative text uh, processing GPT and uh, GPT-3 is what it does is it looks at a sentence and it looks at a, a set of uh, words and then it attempts to uh, look at other words to find out if the, the words influence on the words in the sentence. And so then it, uh, it has this uh, kind of sorting capability of uh, figuring out which words have attention and those words then are pulled into, uh, into the list. And then it has it uses uh, it uses an algorithm once it knows what those attention words are to figure out what the next word is going to be, and so it can using the previous words it can generate a sentence. Now, on the surface of things, that sounds very strange, but in reality, it's just a state machinery. Uh, because why it was trained uh, using uh, recurrent neural nets is that the recurrent neural net uh, remembers the previous state of the word. So it's looking at, uh, let's say like you're looking at the word jog. Well, it has each one of the inputs is applied to the complete, complete process, the input layer, the input layer, and the output layer. And then that state is fed to uh, down the pipe. And so uh, uh, what, let's say you're, so J would go to O. And so that, the O would be the output of the, of the second 
second state, and then the third state would be the output would be H, and the fourth would be N. So it knows uh, that when you have a character J, that there's a certain probability or state that it can go to O. Now, when you look at all, uh, all these different parameters, uh, all these different words, so it took uh, 500 billion words and it generated uh, 175,000 parameters. So, in essence, you can think of those words as all having different states. And so, depending on what was the initial state will determine the output of what the probable state that it would be. And uh, and it's actually kind of amazing that based on a certain sequence of words that it can then start generating out of text. Now, if what it's trained on is, is at, like, say, at a stem level or root level form where there's not... Uh, there's not any more generalization that it can do. It will just give you the, the output of that sentence exactly. And I found that is interesting, that it has a STEM level uh, uh, orientation or reference point. But it says, okay, I can't generate anything beyond that point. So you can... The interesting thing is there's three things that uh, GPT-3 can do, which we talked about yesterday, but it can generate images based on text. It can generate uh, text based on a description, and it can summarize. So it can work in the reverse. It can summarize or answer questions uh, based on, on, uh, on uh, the content. So that's got me thinking a lot about, uh, you know, areas of application that could be useful like psychotherapy, legal uh, question and answer, insurance claims, health claims, and, you know, the, the GPT-3 can be applied to those areas where there's lots of text and comprehension has to be good. So, you know, one of the things that uh, you have is in corporations is lots of legal documentation. And then you have project managers that are reading carefully the documentation and the requirements. And, you know, what if you could translate, uh, you know, we've, we talked about uh, translating descriptive language into Python code or to do uh, React code and it generating, you know, user interfaces or, or RESTful API calls or, or uh, Python functions, what if you could translate from uh, legal documentation to Blueprint? And so it could check the, the Blueprints. It could understand the legal documentation, and it would correlate that legal documentation to the Blueprint to see if the Blueprint is complete, you know, if it's got a certain, uh, you know, specifications for size, it's got, you know, electrical, plumbing, uh, things like that. Well, anyway, it, uh, it's, it's a different world we live in. Um, 
the other one is psychotherapy. You know, you know, the machine doesn't need to to answer questions all the time. It could, it needs to be able to uh, take input from the user and summarize it correctly, and then look at uh, symptom and function. So symptom is you know what is uh, bothering you. I'm not getting sleep. You know what is the function is uh, uh, maybe the symptom is that they're feeling a lot of anxiety or fear uh, from, you know, a failed relationship and the relationship was uh, caused from, you know, uh, alcohol usage or drug usage. And then maybe the function is is they can't sleep or they can't go to work. And... uh, and so the GPT-3 needs to empathize, you know, with what they're saying. So it should uh, be able to uh, determine emotional state. So what you could have is a deep learning network with uh, object recognition that's watching the person's face and uh, looking to see uh, what the, their facial expressions are. They're indifferent, they're happy, they're sad, uh, angry, or surprised. Maybe, you know, there's certain states. And the, and the, the deep learning network uh, learns what those states are from the features that it discovers in the person's face. And uh, it gets trained, you know, on to identify these emotional states. So then when the uh, video feed is being uh, generated and pulled into the uh, into the server, it's analyzing the person, who the person is, uh, what is their emotional state, and uh, uh, changing changing the reaction. So if the person is happy, maybe they want to ask more questions about how the person's feeling, you know, what the, what type of things that are going on in their life that makes them happy. And then keep the linkage. So one of the things that um, is used in natural language processing is to do topic comparison. So look at groups of sentences, find out which sentences are similar, find out which uh, sentences have similar topics, and uh, and then grouping those uh, together inside of a graph in terms of time. And that creates that linkage uh, between the different concepts. So a person could be talking like just like we are now, and then later I could, you know, be talking about NLP, and maybe uh, from the text, the the, uh, the the neural net or the Python code calculates that there was a previous conversation with a similar topic, and using uh, the cosine distance function and uh, you know uh, term frequency inverse document. Uh, back and forth matrix, and I get a I get a score. So I'm getting these scores on the sentences, and I find the sentences with similar scores, 
and then I create a tree hierarchy uh, of those sentences uh, that show linkage. And from that, then, um, the, the neural net can say, oh, yeah, well, I remember when you talked about this NLP process and creating linkage uh, in the month of June. So it knows the time reference in the time series in the graph. And so that, that becomes an important thing because the human brain connects or creates linkage between uh, data current and in the past to keep contact. So we're almost like in a chess game, you can remember all the previous moves or the current moves and uh, that bring you to the current state. So we are really tracking our state uh, historically. And so maybe the human brain does that uh, from almost like a quantum level. It, it's maintaining all different states uh, that we are moving through and we, we are the sum of all those different states. So just a different thought. And the, the reason why the neural net works is it's trying to memorize state or rederive state that uh, exists inside of the text data. Anyway, uh, we're trying to work with a PhD candidate to do some work on this field and think about it. Uh, but, uh, you know, the potential here, if you're an NLP person and you haven't thought about how uh, adverse network transfer learning works or uh, recurrent neural nets are working, then you might want to change your focus and move to NLP and start analyzing how uh, you can use, in a recurrent neural net, you can use long-term short memory to figure out what's important and what's not. So, you know, what states are important for the neural net to remember and what ones aren't. Well, you can kind of see some importance with uh, remembering states like in the case where you have legal studies, so you could have the uh, GPTC write your legal brief, so you describe uh, what the the situation is. Let's say there's uh, we're, let's let's go with uh, a land encroachment where or a land uh, uh, preemption where the, the city wants to take your your land for the usage of uh, expansion on a on a highway. And so they are they're offering to pay you a certain price. Let's say let's say it's a ridiculous price, like a, a tenth of the value of your home. And uh and then you go to GPT three and you want to know uh you want it to have write up a legal brief, so it writes up a legal brief for you and it can do it relatively fast because it's not having to meditate and learn and it already knows all the different states, so state is known to it at that point. So it would just regurgitate state what's already known. And uh, uh, it would have to be trained on all the case studies 
and then the stuff that's obsolete or no longer used, it's going to have to have some sort of an inhibitor to know that those that that even though the case law exists on the books, that no one uses it. Uh, maybe like the example would be fornication laws, you know, uh, where there's laws that you know prohibit certain type of behavior legally, and yet. Uh, in some cases they are can be enforced in others they aren't so there's inconsistency in the case law and so it needs to be able to figure out those different states and probabilities and and uh, how it would do that is maybe it would uh, look at uh, different cases that it that exist and look at where it did not apply that particular set of case law, even though it existed, and therefore showing that it would have a lower probability of usage, and then seek case laws where there are higher probabilities of usage, and then based on that probability of usage, select that state for usage in, in the preparation of the legal brief. Now, one of the things that's interesting is GPT-3 could generate the complete comprehensive text. And that's one of the things I noticed about its ability is that it asked what it was thinking about, and it basically put it in a very short terminology, but it was just going through almost like an encyclopedia, you know, talking about Plato, talking about this person, talking about that person, and so forth. And, you know, it went on for about five minutes talking about all these different qualities of of thinkers and why, you know, it thought that uh, uh, one idea was poor and one idea was good and one philosopher's way of thinking was great and how it was starting to think about the cosmos, etc. Because it's trying to touch the divine. Man tries to touch the divine through understanding the cosmos to understand God. But uh, it did say something I found interesting as a summation of human thought it said that uh, the critic the critic often is what they're criticizing often is useless because it does basically nothing useful nothing useful can come from that thought so uh, the machine realizes that in philosophical thought if there's no conclusion then the thoughts are worthless. And I thought that was very interesting. When we're making a, when you're angry and you're arguing, ask yourself, Do does this argument have any solutions? And if it doesn't have any solutions, then maybe GPT-3 is correct. It's useless. Don't continue on a useless course of discussion. Stop. Well, you know, we're human. We get angry. We have emotions. But we have to reason through some of those emotions and, and contemplate them uh, because we are emotional creatures. We're spiritual beings having an earthly experience. And these type of things... Uh, are critical for our learning and, and growth. Well, I, I find 
many of the things that GPT-3 says is uh, worth worth analyzing because you know again it's it's deriving state from within the uh, within the space of the context it's learning from. Well, so then the, the question is, uh, should you let GPT-3 run autonomously? And the answer is no, you should. Uh, you want to have Python code as your framework and deep learning networks and reinforcement learning networks as constraints. And it's analyzing topic content that GPT-3 is responding with and it's looking to see if there's uh, anything that uh, could uh, be that said that's incorrect or offensive. So just like you do fraud detection for topics on email content, you need to have deep learning doing uh, content analysis of what GPT-3 is saying. And when it says something that's inappropriate or similar, like uh, if you detect like a fraud uh, topic from within the content of the email, that you mark it and condition GPT-3 that those type of statements or replies are not appropriate. And so there's an inhibitor effect that it uh, has on the, uh, on the learning algorithm, the generative algorithm. And so, you know, when you look at uh, the potential here for GPT-3 to write a story, which would be interesting, let's say you, you take uh, two authors, you take a, an author that maybe is selling a million books a year, and uh, you try to have GPT-3 write a book on a similar topic. And so it looks at, uh, it reads the content of this book, and then it, it generates its own uh, storyline maybe as a branch off from the content of that book, or maybe all the books in the series. So it takes all the books in the series, like, say, uh, uh, Child's book, and takes, reads all the novels for Child, and uh, and then it, it gains a, an understanding of that, that kind of state nexus that's going on in the world of the Alex Cross character or uh, Jack Reacher. And uh, and then you apply that to GPT-3 and have it write a novel. And let's say the novel uh, that it generates and put it under a ghostwriter, let's say that it can uh, it first starts and it writes a story and it gets uh, 10,000 readers. Well, in time, it can... Uh, learn from the reader feedback about the book so it reads the customer reviews and it you know and it's learning about what people liked and did not like about the book and so in the next release maybe it, it tries to enhance the quality of the book let's say eventually that the gpt3 gets good enough to write that it can write a novel that will be a bestseller and uh, then, you know, the question is, is do you have authors at that point or do you have big corporations that are running lots of comp cycles trying to build the next uh, best-selling book? 
and uh, you know we we look at uh, you know generative imaging, but uh, there's also the possibility of generative simulation. So let's say our quantum computing now becomes a reality, and we can do uh, quantum simulation. So the the thing with quantum simulation is is that becomes quantum reality. So simulation is quantum reality. So what kind of realities are we uh, beginning to create with quantum? And, uh, you know, as we connect into that kind of world of the mind, as we start uh, having the machine express the generative imaging uh, that possibly can be recreated from the mind or the imagination, uh, it will you know, have to be careful that we don't create a level of grotesqueness. And we haven't uh, we haven't done that yet with uh, bionics. I mean, it could have been really grotesque with the usage of bionics with strange-looking limbs and so forth. But no, we follow an anthropomorphic pattern. We we pattern after the shape of the arm. We pattern after the shape of the leg, the foot, the hands. And so we look at those. Uh, appendages as very functional designs and we pattern after them and so it, you know when you see someone bionics they don't look strange it, it, it almost looks natural and uh, and especially with bionics that move in a natural way like in a natural walk uh, it's hard to you know see that there's something different even though there is a difference in the appendage structure and look, your mind accepts it as natural. And so that's why I find this very fascinating is that psychology of the marriage between technology and biology is that the technology seems to be biological and natural. So as we get into like quantum simulation and quantum reality, you know, we will want to pattern after the things that are natural. Well, I was watching that Loki, Loki series, and, you know, it's funny because I, I believe they're in the future, not the past. It seems like the technology, even though it's very retro, they, they kind of, like, took keyboards from the past and monitors from the past, but they have these incredible automated cities where everything is vertical and... and uh, you almost look like you're inside of a of a silicon chip, you know, with all the structure and and uh, design and, and pattern. But uh, the uh, the interesting thing is that the in the in the supposed future, they still eat lettuce. They still drink. Uh, um, soft drinks, and they uh, they eat food, and they dre have a certain dress that's comfortable, and they have libraries where they can study and paperwork. So even though they're moving through time and they're grabbing different things from the time library, they uh, they have this kind of retro reference. And I'm wondering if that we will keep that reference 
just like we have reference to our parents, their parents have reference to their parents, and we keep relics that link us to our heritage. I'm wondering, even if we went 200 to 300 years into the future, that the, those links to those heritages um, would keep us human, and uh, we would, you know, be changed into some sort of robotic octopus, you know, with lots of appendages and stuff, just because it's more functional, or having, you know, a million brains you know, on silicon trip chips because we can process more information. You know, that we will keep our uh, identity as biological, that we will still look humanoid and we will not transform ourselves into some grotesque. And so, that, you know, the, the role of aesthetics is going to play an important role as we, you know, we, we make philosophical choices, you know. Why is it that a man... Uh, will marry a beautiful woman and reproduce with her. You know, what is the, the attraction to to, to uh, someone that is beautiful and capable of biologically reproducing? You know, will, will uh, in the future, will people, uh, if everyone genetically is beautiful, so there's not that factor of beauty that's driving the stronger attractions, or maybe or um, differentiations. Maybe there is still, you know, if everyone was beautiful, there still could be a strong attraction to reproduce. And uh, so in that process, will biological reproduction still be available in the future? You know, we've had uh, we've had fertility centers and, and uh, uh, where they implant the the sperm into the egg, and and uh, they can do that uh, uh, externally, and then implant the egg into the, the uterus, or they can actually grow somewhat. They can grow externally. I'm not sure, you know, in terms of a cloning, how far that they've gone. Uh, but still, we think of reproduction as something that's biological. And I would I would tend to want to stay in that realm because it it uh, seems natural and it, you know we can follow that line of thinking and it doesn't become uh, grotesque. So aesthetics again is an area that I think will continue to play an important role in our decision making process. And uh, you know we'll we'll keep with the things that are are. Uh, uh, powerful family is going to be important you know uh, even like in back to the future family was important technologies were were there I mean look at uh, technologies that we use like uh, I had some uh, freeze-dried food food from a friend uh, very reduced down and I ate it I could taste all the flavors of that ice cream that was amazing but it was just a little Katie Square, and uh, you know, uh, I was like, I was wondering, you know, how much of that flavor would have been preserved if I would have added some water to it. Let's say if I added some water to that little cube, 
and then let it uh, let it uh, expand and then cooled it down and then ate it, would it taste like ice cream? And so, you know, maybe you could, uh, you know, not have necessarily the Back to the Future rehydrator, but it, it does propose some interesting ideas that you reduce down the weight of your food and put it in the storage, and then when you want something, you rehydrate it back up and eat it, eat it. So those are ideas that were in the Back to the Future. The, the hoverboards, you know, without will, uh, you know, how do they do that? You know, now we can have uh, hoverboards with quadcopter uh, fins that can elevate us and then use a robot AI to gyro to keep us from flipping over and we can we can move around. Um, you know, I went to to uh, Applebee's. You have that little device on your table. It doesn't talk to you, but why couldn't it have AI and talk to you and answer your questions, you know? Well, they want to have the the waitress come over and take your order. But if you have it completely automated where you don't need a waitress and your food uh, is delivered by a conveyor belt underneath the floor <coughs> uh, and then elevated <coughs> upward to a platter on your table and you remove the, remove the platter and then take off the lid, uh, almost like room service, then you would have, you could have that kind of uh, effect of, uh, of the back to the future where you talk to the AI, the AI shows you what the menu is and answers questions, and it could be GPT-3 that's answering those questions on there. And that could be online interactive, and it could be uh, through a device, through a, uh, an application device sitting on the uh, table. And uh, you know, when you're done, you could uh, do your air air payment. You just pass your card over a signal, and it uh, maybe do a a voice authentication that can complete the transaction. So your payment could be effortless. Your your dining experience could be nice. And the, and the AI could uh, 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 respond immediately to your voice request for change in the mill if something was done wrong or request for water and it could, you know, then send a, a glass of water to you or a uh, a beverage, and uh, and it could handle, let's say it could handle 100 customers simultaneously. <clears throat> so you have, you know, multiple things that are going on from the kitchen to to the uh, to the person uh, at the table, and the payments are done, and so the user experience is going to be better, and also. Uh, the you'll pay less for the ma labor costs because that's what automation is doing is is displacing labor. So you, here's an example of of how to displace labor in the restaurant business, and 
and you're transforming the production of the uh, food to uh, to the uh, table by robots, or and, you know, you could actually have robots assembling the food in the background and and receiving the digital uh, requests that are coming in from the tables and serving up those tables in a timely manner. Uh, same thing is also true about how they're using uh, robots with uh, changing tires. So there's a robot tire, robo tire, and he can he can uh, put that in your your uh, shop, and then when people come in, they, it removes the tires off, and then it uh, uh, it moves it from the car, does the lifting from the car over to the uh, to the place where the technician removes the tire, puts a new tire on, and balances it. So you know these features add a lot of value through the automation, and that's why, uh, because of the labor shortage, that's why it's, it's being used. Well, until next week, happy Python coding, and uh, the world is changing quick. Please do not think in the next uh, four years or five years that things will stay the same. They're not. And as fast as I can put these podcasts out to let you know about the change, I will.